Isaiah chapter 42. If you are, if you're here for the first time, you're jumping in on the fourth part of a series that we've been doing about living in exile. So I have to give you a little recap. This is probably the final part of it. Um, The exile was a period in the history of God's people when they were taken into captivity. It was about uh, the late 500s BC. They were taken into captivity from Jerusalem, from their own city, where they worshipped God at the temple and they celebrated Passover and all the feasts. They were taken away from there and for 70 years they lived in a place called Babylon under the rule, first of all, of Nebuchadnezzar and then several other pagan kings after him. And for 70 years, they had to maintain their identity as the people of God. There had to be somebody to come back out at the end. Now, 70 years, you look at biblical history and you think, what's the big deal? But just think about your own life. And if for the next 70 years, you were pulled out of your familiar context, pulled away from all of the things that allow you to worship God, to follow Jesus, and you're put in a completely alien context, in a, in a place and in a culture that does not acknowledge God at all. That's what the exile was. And I think largely that's what the church is living in in the 21st century. Culture does not recognize God. Culture does not value Jesus, does not value his teachings, does not honor him in any way, does not acknowledge his truth, and largely, frankly, spits in his face and, and tries to offend his teaching as much as possible. Certainly that's the way it frequently appears. So I think there's a lot for the church to learn from this exile period in the history of God's people about how we as Christians keep our identity in the culture that we're living in that is hostile to God. So an exile, as I use the term exile this morning, an exile is someone who follows God, follows Jesus, but is in an alien culture to the one that they are familiar with as God's people. And the first week, we looked at the fact that exiles tell their story again and again and again. Mainly for them in the Old Testament, it was the story of the Exodus. For us, it is all the stories of what God has done and ultimately the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The second week, we saw that exiles are a defiant people from the story of Daniel. They will respect and they will honor those who are in authority over them, but they will draw the line when it needs to be drawn. Daniel said, I will not allow you to change my identity as the Babylonians tried to change his name and the names of his friends. I will not defile myself with the delicacies that are on the king's table and I will not bow down to your gods. Exiles are defiant They maintain their identity by standing strong and standing firm against the tide of the culture that they live in. Last week, we saw that exiles bless the culture that they live in and transform it. They pray for the peace and the prosperity of the city that they're living in. They settle down. They form long-term relationships. They work hard and they bless the community that is around them. And today, I want to look at the songs that exiles sing. Nelson Mandela said that music is a great blessing. It has the power to elevate and liberate us. It sets people free to dream. It can unite us to sing with one voice. Such is the power of music. What we sing 
is so important, church. And don't be thinking that the important points will come at the end because we're important already, all right? What we sing is so important. Those of us that have children, what our children hear us sing is so important. We spend as much time singing on a Sunday morning as I do speaking and teaching from the Word of God. Although I know you think that it's really long and that, but we, it is pretty much equal. There is a message that comes in the songs that we sing. There's a message that comes in the words that we read from God's Word and, and how we expound them. Let me, let me read from Isaiah 42, seeing as you went to the ball there of turning to it. Verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all who live in them. Let the desert and its towns raise their voices. Let the settlements where Kedar lives rejoice. Let the people of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountaintops. Let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim his praise in the islands. The Lord will march out like a mighty man. Like a warrior, he will stir up his zeal. With a shout, he will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. You imagine God's people singing that in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar's nose. Declaring that the Lord will rise up as a warrior, that he will triumph over his enemies. The shocking reality for me is that the majority of what I say right now, you will have forgotten by tomorrow. No matter how much I bounce about and raise my voice and do my best, there's only a small percentage of what I say that will really lodge in your mind long term. And therefore what we sing is important. Because... Whenever you just hear something, you're only obviously using your ears. Whenever you sing it, you're looking at the words, you're using your voice, and you're hearing yourself and other people sing it. We tip that I sometimes give to people whenever they're reading their Bible, read it aloud if you can. Because if you read it aloud, you're using far more senses and faculties in order to understand it than just letting your eyes run across the page. I even used to sing stupid things when I was revising to try and get daft things into my head and I can still remember them even today. The act of standing up in a group of people and declaring something means it will lodge in your thinking and in your heart and we must make sure that what we're singing is what God would have us to sing. Even on Monday night we sat here, about 30 of us, doing the Freedom in Christ course. And at the end of the night, in unison, we all read out a load of biblical statements about who God is not and rejecting the the things that we know God is not these things. And then we read out statements from the Bible about who God is. We did it together. We heard ourselves say it. And because that's an act that helps those truths to lodge in us. What we sing is so important. And when you talk to young Christians in particular and you listen to them and you listen to them pray, you can hear that their songs are shaping them a lot. Too much sometimes. So we need to make sure that we're singing the right songs. Songs historically have been sang in times of revolution and in times of defiance. At many weighty big moments in history, people have sang together. In the civil rights movement in in America in the last century, 
all of the songs. It's amazing the deep wealth of songs these people had and that they sang together as they demanded their freedom. They took all these religious songs from their heritage and they started to sing them together on the streets, defiant. Chuck Berry wrote a song called The Promised Land. Half the world sang a song called People Get Ready and the whole world sang a song called We Shall Overcome. Those are all spiritual songs with biblical imagery that that the people sang in that movement of defiance. And Martin Luther King in the speech that he gave the night that he was assassinated said, I have seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. He declared that he had seen something that these people were to aim for and strive for. That should be part of our singing. Singing about a future reality. Singing about what God has done in the past and singing about what lies ahead for the people of God. And Martin Luther King declared that he had seen a future and he encouraged people to reach out and grab it. And that was in many of their songs. We shall overcome. We shall live in peace. We'll walk hand in hand. We are not afraid. These songs that they sang. And these are the sorts of songs that the church should be able to sing. I don't like French and I don't like history. Two most hateful subjects that I studied in school. So French history is definitely not a strong point. But apparently, in 1789, outside the Bastille, this this great sort of fortress prison that, that marked the oppression of the government at that time, the revolutionaries stood outside and they sang as they stormed the Bastille. In 1980s, in Germany, in, in Leipzig, six people got together in a little church. They were opposed to the Berlin Wall and they began to sing and pray for freedom. And by the end of the decade, there were 12,000 of them. And one German communist leader was reported to have said, we had planned for everything. We had prepared for everything, but we had not prepared for singing and praying. They didn't know how to deal with a singing people. The power of people singing together and declaring truth I mentioned Mandela earlier on. Whenever he was in prison, basically the mention of his name was banned by the apartheid government. You weren't allowed to talk about him. He was a a revolutionary and they had put him in a box and tried to silence him. And people weren't allowed to speak of him. So what they did was they sang songs. They wrote songs about the things that Mandela fought for and that he believed in. And they sang those songs seditiously while he was in prison. And then what happened was their young people came and said, who is this person you're singing about? Who is this person you're singing? Tell me about this person. Oh, that the church would sing songs that would cause the younger generation to come and say, who is this king? Who is this mighty one that you sing of? Also under apartheid, Christmas carols were banned for a season because Christmas carols spoke of peace and goodwill to all men. And the apartheid government didn't want people singing and yearning for goodwill to all men. And they banned the singing of Christmas carols. Who would ban our songs? Who would ban the songs that the church sing? Would any of them get banned? Some of them might. A lot of them probably wouldn't. I can imagine if... if, uh, People were very, very opposed to Christianity and uh, they were having a discussion and said, 
Do you know what? There are about 5,000 people in a darkened room with no natural light, bright pink and white lights, big band, and they're all singing about how much they're in love with Jesus. I can imagine the authorities saying, that's no threat to us. Let them go. But if they can find 50 people crammed in a room declaring that God is great, that Jesus is the King, that God has set people free and will set people free, that the Holy Spirit is welcome here, then they may well say, shut it down. Those are songs of revolution. Those are songs of defiance that will upset an empire. One of the most famous songs of the exile, which you've probably heard various versions of, is is Psalm 137, "By by the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down, we wept as we remembered Zion. And one line of the song says that they hung their harps on the trees. You ever heard of a footballer saying he's hung up his boots? It means he's retired, he's done. And these people in in exile hung up their harps and stopped singing. They shouldn't have. They shouldn't have stopped singing. When we sing, we declare who God is and we give him thanks. And in Romans chapter 1, Paul writes of the danger of failing to give him glory and give him thanks. It can lead to all sorts of twisted ideas. When people fail to give him glory and thanks. Sometimes you don't want to sing. You hear that? Don't you? I'm not really in the mood for singing. Don't really. You're not being given an option. Okay. You're not being given an option. We're, you know, there's, there's not a demand that your heart or your life has to be in a certain place. Or you have to sing in a certain way. But we are commanded to sing. The psalmist over and over again makes this choice. I will sing. Psalm 13, 6, I'll sing because he's been good to me. Now, if God hasn't been good to you and you don't want to sing, that's fine. But we'll probably have a long argument afterwards whether or not he has really been good to you or not. I'll sing because he's good to me. Psalm 18, 49, I will give thanks and sing praise. 57, 9, I will sing to him among the nations. That means among the pagan culture. Doesn't mean we go on wee trips here and there and sing in shopping centers or something. It means in the culture that we live in, we will sing praise to Him. Psalm 59, 16, I'll sing of His power. Same verse, I'll sing of His mercy. The verse afterwards, I will sing because He is my defense. 89, 1, I'll sing of His faithfulness and love. 138, 1, I'll sing with my whole heart. It's a decision, I will sing. I will sing. Give me something to sing though. Give me something I can sing. Don't give me. Be careful with your words. (laughs) Give me something I can sing. To declare his praise. To declare his glory. You know the second part of Isaiah. which, Which a lot of scholars actually think is a separate book. Is basically Isaiah's greatest hits. It's a collection of songs that he writes and sings to the exiles and sends to them for them to sing. I want you to look at some of the things that they sing. If you've got Isaiah open, go to to chapter 41. Remember again where they are. The Babylonians can hear them. This is illegal singing. You're not allowed to sing like this, but this is the way that they sing. This is why they're a threat to the empire. 
In 41 verse 13, part of the song is, I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand. Not for a cute walk along the beach. That's a symbol of power and strength when God takes hold of your right hand. And says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, O worm Jacob. That's not what God calls them. That's what Babylon called them. Worms. Insignificant. Do not be afraid, O worm, Jacob, O little Israel, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. So they're singing songs in Babylon about how they're not to be afraid of the culture around them and that God is going to come and help them. In chapter 43, if you turn a page to the right, in verses 5 and 6, Again, do not be afraid. This is a song. It's a poem. Isaiah sang it and they sang it. Do not be afraid for I am with you. They're in captivity and listen to what they're singing. God's declaration, I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. A defiant statement, you're not going to hold these people long term. God will return. God will come for his people. Do we sing songs like that? Defiant songs. Again in chapter 49 and verse 25, the Lord says, captives will be taken from warriors. And plunder retrieved from the fierce. In other words, Babylon has taken my people captive. I'm coming to get them back. That's what they sang. I will contend with those who contend with you. And your children I will save. Now those are threatening songs. To sing in that empire and in that context. And what Isaiah also teaches. Is that when God hears his people sing. He sings also. If you go back to chapter 42. Chapter 42. God's people are singing. Sorry, chapter 41 it is, I think. Ah, I've lost it now completely. gone but there's a verse where where God's people are singing and then he responds and he says I will cry out like a woman in labor it's basically saying I've heard your singing and now I've got something to say I've got a song to sing I've got a noise to make and it's a noise of birthing it's a noise and a groaning of something new being created when God sings over his people he sings new things into being do we sing songs Like God's people sang in exile. Or have we forgotten who we are? Do we lock ourselves away in darkened auditoriums. And declare that we are in love with Jesus. But all the while we're no threat to anyone or anything. I'm going to do something I don't normally do. And I'm going to play you a song. I'm not going to play it myself and sing it because that would be awful. I'm going to play you a song. And you'll think it's a weird choice of a song. But I think it, it captures um, 
what was going on in the exile. Whoever wrote this song understood the exile. And the guy that's singing the version of it that I'm going to play, if anybody wants to, to search for it, is a guy called Joshua James, and he's not a Christian. But I couldn't find a Christian version of it that actually captured the gravity of, of the song and the time that was being sung about. And another slightly odd thing about it, it's a Christmas song. But that's so wrong. <laughs> this is a year-round song about exile. And in 20 years of carol services... I have never actually sang this song anywhere in a congregation, and I'd love to. It's three minutes long. Indulge me, Reuben. Go for it there, please. <clears throat>
Now, when it comes to melody and musical arrangement and all that, take it or leave it, but the, the words, those are the sort of words that God's people sing in exile. A declaration that he will come. There is a future and there is a hope. There's another exile in the Bible. If you thought that was the sermon over, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Revelation chapter 1, there's another exile that I want to make mention of. Um, it's John. And we were in Revelation chapter 1 in detail back around about February. Uh, you can go to the podcast if you want to hear more about it. I'm not going into it in any detail. I just want to read it to make a point. And I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. So this is uh, from verse 13. John, For John, the exile was basically the emperor. I can't remember whether it was Nero or Domitian. But the emperor took him from... He was probably involved in the leadership of the church in Ephesus. The emperor was sick of him and said, right, mate, off you go to exile. Lifted him, planted him on an island with probably a slave labor camp. He had a degree of freedom in that he could sort of walk around. He wasn't in chains and in a cell, but he couldn't get off the island. He couldn't get back to his own environment. He was an exile and he sees a vision of Jesus. And this is the vision of Jesus church that we need to have. When we're singing our songs. Because some of our songs. We could not sing to a Jesus like this. Listen in verse 13. Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet. And with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool. As white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I ran up and hugged him. It's not what it says, sure it's not. It's a daft concept, isn't it? What happened when John saw him? John fell on his face. On his face. Now, if you want to hug that Jesus, you just work away. I will be on the beach 10 yards away trying to get your attention, just going, no, get down, get down. Whenever C.S. Lewis wanted an image of Jesus to use in his children's stories, he picked a lion. You don't hug lions. You don't hug this powerful resurrected king. You bow. You worship him. And he comes over to John and says, don't be afraid. Up you get. Don't be afraid. I think a lot of our musical imagery in the church has become overly romantic And if I may indulge myself, I don't know whether the men will agree with me. So I don't know if I'm speaking on their behalf or not, but it's a real struggle sometimes to sing some of the music that is being pumped into the church. I am not in love with Jesus. I love him. He is my king. I am not in love with him. I don't have the warm fuzzies. I love him. 
And I find it difficult sometimes to sing some songs that come down the pipeline. Is it appropriate to express our devotion to Jesus in very romantic, dare I say it, slightly feminine ways? The Old Testament prophets do talk about God as being the bridegroom and his people as being the bride. But every time that example or that illustration is used, it is not an illustration of romantic love. It is an illustration of faithfulness. Faithfulness. And it's always to the bride Israel who has engaged in idolatry, which God calls spiritual adultery. That's whenever the imagery is used. You, Israel, have been unfaithful to your husband. It's not romance. It's faithfulness. It's faithfulness. And into the New Testament, similar illustrations are used in Paul, but they're written to people who are being unfaithful. They're written to the like of the church in Corinth, where there's a lot of unfaithfulness. And Paul says to them, I want to present you as a virgin bride, pure, not for romantic reasons, but for faithful reasons. Faithful, living right the way God wants them to live. And in Revelation 19, there's... there's, the, the picture of this great marriage feast of the Lamb, Jesus, and his bride, the church. But it ain't romance. It's a bride purified and prepared for her husband. It's faithfulness. It is right living in the eyes of God. We sang earlier of, of the arms of God. And I, I chatted with, with Aaron beforehand. We, we talked about the songs. I'm good with singing about the Father's arms. I'm good with that. I'm not good with singing about a lover's arms. I don't know, lads. I wish some of you would nod at me. <laughs> Maybe you're all disagreeing. But I find it tough sometimes, that lover imagery. He's a warrior. He is a king. He loves me. I love him. But we're not in love. Let's be careful with our language that we don't confuse our children and the younger generation as they hear us sing and start to get strange ideas about what it means to walk with God. Does God want to hold my hand? Yes, he does, according to Isaiah that we read earlier. But what does it mean? Is it the cute ditzy walk along the beach in the sunset? Is it like this? Or is it like this? There's a big difference. Have you ever been in church and the preacher has said, Let's all stand up and, and hold hands. <laughs> and you look beside you and you've got somebody like Josh beside you and you're like, no. <laughs> no, that will never happen here. <laughs> and you just, you sort of reach out and your eyes are closed and, oh, lad. Does God want to hold my hand? Yes, he does. He does. But he wants to hold my right hand. God's arms and his hands in the scripture are a symbol of strength. The Old Testament warrior, you didn't fight with long-range weaponry. You fought up close with whatever you had in your hands. Your hands were a, were a symbol of strength and battle. And when God says, I will take your right hand, he's saying, I'll give you strength in this battle. He's not saying, come on, let's go for a walk. He said, I'll give you strength. Do we know what these images mean? I will sing of God's love. But do I know what that means? 
when I sing of someone who wants to cuddle me? Or am I singing of someone who so loved me and the whole world that he gave his son? Do I know what love is? There's another old song coming to mind. I'm nearly about to break out into it. (laughs) What does loving God really look like? If we just sing in here over and over and over and over again, I love you, I love you, I love you, I'm in love with you, I love you, I love you, I love you, again and again. Are we actually loving God? Because I don't think Jesus said, if you love me, sing to me about your love for me. He said, if you love me, obey my commands. The greatest commandment when he was asked, he said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And love others, love your neighbor as yourself. Do you want to show your love for God, church? It doesn't mean stand for prolonged singing. Get out and love the world. And by doing that, you're showing love for God. He says to, Jesus says to Peter in John 21, do you love me, Peter? Yeah, yeah. Right, Peter, go and look after my people. Go and tend my sheep, my flock. Action. Not just singing. We do sing of his love. Yes, we do. But if we limit our declaration and our our love for God to what we sing, we are moving way away from what Jesus calls us to as our lives of love towards him. Sometimes you'll hear people say, I wish we had worshipped for longer this morning. I wish we had longer to express our love for God. Folks, you've got 24 hours a day and seven days a week to worship and express your love for him by obeying his commands, by loving People who are not loved by anyone else. By living as a faithful exile in Babylon. Worship never stops and never starts. Loving God, it doesn't, it's not like you get this window of opportunity. Now we have 15 minutes to show our love for God. <laughs> no, no. And singing is not evangelism. Let's not think, well, we better be careful about our songs because we want to be able to, to reach people. We, we don't sing songs to reach people. We sing songs because God is worthy of our praise. We sing songs to declare what he has done. And if people are there to listen to it, all the better. We sing songs because he is faithful. We sing because there's a story to tell. We sing because we know how the story ends and we declare it in our songs. We don't craft them for any other purpose than declaring the wonders of his name and giving him praise and giving him thanksgiving. Singing is an act of war. In 2 Chronicles, I think it's chapter 20, the king puts his singers, his choir on the front line of the battle. Can you imagine? Just picture a choir in their robes, all nice and clean and and their hair done and everything, ready for the Sunday night service. And the king comes along and he looks at all the, all the archers and all the, all the other warriors and he says, guys, you all take a step back. And he wheels in the choir to the front row of the, of the battle. He says, you go first and sing. And as they sing, the battle is won. God fights for his people as they sing. John Piper said, when God hears his children sing, he looks around and says, where's an enemy? As if as he hears them sing, he just reaches out his hand looking for for some demon to flatten, you know, as a response to hearing the praises of his people. 
Praise and singing to God is an act of war. I will never forget, I hope, in November 2015, some of you were there. We stood in a different room a bit further up the town on a Friday night. Many of you actually were there. First night we were in here. Not very many. (laughs) Just you, brother. (laughs) And we sang, Great Are You, Lord. And I, I mean it, it was violent. It was aggressive. It was a declaration being made by a people that God is great. That there will be a time coming when all the earth will shout his praise. That he does give hope. That he does give life. That he is love. And we declared that. That he is great. And that became sort of an anthem for a while for table. That declaration. And I don't know about you, but I find my heart stirring when we sing songs like that. That are a declaration. My heart does not stir about being in love with Jesus. But it stirs when I declare the greatness of God. And who he is. There's another one that we sang quite frequently and the, and the, the first line of one of the verses says, King Jesus, you're the name we're lifting high. Like, yes, yes, I can sing that. I can sing that. Because do you know what? I believe the spiritual darkness can hear it and hates it. And it's an act of war and defiance. Those are songs I sing with a clenched fist. An act of defiance against the darkness. I wonder sometimes what song Jesus sang in the upper room that night after the, the meal, before they went to Gethsemane. It says they sang a hymn. It's probably one of the psalms associated with the Passover meal, but I'd love to know exactly. I'd love to see it. You know the way you think, when I get to that day, when I see him, and surely there's going to be some way that I can look back and see all these little things in Scripture that weren't recorded in enough detail for me. I'd love to know what they sang. I'd love to see their body language as they sang it. What were their faces like? I'd love to see that. I think some of the songs we sing today are confusing. And that's a kindness. Instead of us declaring our identity and declaring who our God is while we live in exile in this culture, we have capitulated to the culture and a lot of our songs you could just change a word here and a word there and suddenly it's a love song for the top 40 if there is such a thing anymore yet in the past our brothers and sisters in the exile in the new testament and in the history of the church sang into reality a new world sang a dangerous set of promises about who god is and what he said he would do defied the culture around them. Who would ban our songs? <laughs> if they were to come down and listen in, would they just say, let, let them sing away. They're not going to, you know, they're singing, Jesus, I'm your precious snowflake. They're not going to do anybody any harm with that. <laughs> but when they hear the songs of revolution, defiance and truth and the cross and the resurrection. I remember as well, with Darren Mulligan one night up in the pub at the top of the town, the Montague Arms, somehow we found our way in there with him and his guitar. And at the end of the night, we sang 
And it felt like another one of those just prophetic moments. We sang at the top of the town and I could just picture the words going out and just dropping down the hill. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere, change the atmosphere. I can't remember what it was. But I remember just declaring over this town, my town, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. That's good. Terry Virgo says that many people praise God in a limited way because they've never spent time getting to know him or what he has done. And they don't really have anything to sing about. We must stop singing songs that have no content. Let's sing big truths. This is frequently my, my message to, to Aaron in advance of a, of a Sunday morning. It's, it goes along the lines of, Aaron, give us some big truths on Sunday. Give us some big, big truths. Don't care whether they're big beat songs or big fast songs. Just give us big truth that we can lay hold on. There was a, there was a period, particularly in the first maybe three or four months of this year, that, that I just really felt it was a serious time and a time that the church needed to sing truth. And I was on his case every week. Come on, give us big, big truths that we can get hold of. See, when you start singing about a world that is to come, a world of justice and mercy and peace, when you start singing like a woman in labor, groaning and dreaming that there has to be something more than just the culture around us, then you're singing like an exile. And what you find in that community is muscular, dynamic, energized worship that says, Nebuchadnezzar, you will not have the last word. Satan, you will not have the last word. Dealers, peddlers, abusers, you will not have the last word. Yahweh, our God, rejoice. Emmanuel will come to you. And he will vindicate his people. So let's sing. And for goodness sake. Come on. I don't care what you do with your hands. And I don't care what you do with your eyes. And I don't want to force anyone. But we're going to put some truths up on the screen and sing them. And you just sing them whatever way you're comfortable with. But men in particular... There's no hugging songs coming up. You should be able to lay hold of it. I want to hear those big, deep voices. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. 